Um, it, is, it is wonderful to be back with you this morning, uh, back in Philippians. Uh, we're going to be, we've been in this letter for a little while. Oh, I've left my clicker down. We've been in this letter for a little while. We actually started way back in September in this letter. Uh, and today we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. And so you can see from September to now only be halfway through chapter 2, we're, we're moving slowly through this book. And that's because it is, a, it is rich and it is joy-filled. Um, and joy is certainly one of the themes that jumps from this letter. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that it is always a light letter, if you know what I mean. It, it, it's not always been easy for us to digest because God has some challenging things to teach us through this wonderful letter. And we've seen that so far through chapters 1 and 2. And the big picture that we're hoping to see as we, as we uh, journey our way through this whole letter is how God is showing us how we can have deep roots of a joyful faith. That the joy that the Philippians speaks of and teaches us and the joy indeed that God brings is not a fleeting emotion that we can lose or be higher than or lower than in some days. No, the joy that Christ brings is deep and it is lasting and it is eternal regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. You see, the, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter guided by God's Spirit um, to the church in Philippi in the second half of the first century when life was not easy. We've already seen in chapter 1 that Paul is indeed writing this letter from prison. And he's in prison because of his faithful and passionate and bold witnessing to Christ. And so God inspires Paul in the writing of this letter to show that, it is, that remaining faithful to him is not always going to be easy. But it is always going to be joyful. And so he's writing this letter to the Philippian church to encourage them that, yes, there will be trials, there will be distractions in their walks of discipleship, but here is a letter of joyful encouragement to say, keep going, keep going in the faith because of the goodness of the gospel, because of the, the necessity of your obedience to that gospel, to the witness you can have in the world, keep going. Develop these deep roots of joyful faith that whatever your circumstances may be, Christ will hold you fast and take you to the end. And so that's what we've been enjoying up until now. And, and chapter 2, even just to, to set us in the context before we jump into verse 14. Chapter 2 so far has been teaching us about what true Christian humility is. And of course that humility is perfectly demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus who left the glory of heaven to stoop down to earth, to take on human flesh, to become obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. And the reason he did all of that, the reason he stooped, was to take the penalty of sin upon himself. That, that was and that always has been God's salvation plan. That Christ, God's son, the perfect one, the sinless one, would come into the world, take the sins of the world upon himself as he hung on the tree so that through faith and repentance in him, we, the sinners, the guilty ones, would know forgiveness from sin and therefore life eternal. And so Christ stooped low, but of course that is not the end of the story. We've said this repeatedly, the grave could not hold him. The enemy had not defeated Christ on the cross because he rose victoriously from the dead. He has now ascended back in heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ has won victory over sin and death for all who put their trust in him. And he did it firstly by humbling himself to the cross. And now he is seated as the ultimate authoritative one at the right hand of the Father, waiting to judge the living and the dead. And all of what that means is that for those who follow him, we must, we must surrender to him as our Savior, as the one who stooped to take our sin in our place, 
And also live then as him as our king. That he is risen, victorious, authoritative. And so our saviour and our king, our saviour and our lord, the one who died for our sin and the one who reigns over all. That is why we can then be humble. In fact, humility is the only response. To, to throw ourselves before him in repentance and faith and say, thank you, Jesus, and to live our lives for him. And in verses 12 and 13, at the very end of November, we saw then Paul going into more detail about what it means to live with Christ as our Savior and our Lord, what it means to follow him, what it means to live obedient lives for him. It, it's a process which the Bible calls sanctification. It, it is how we become more like Christ as his spirit is at work in us. That's what sanctification really is. And in verses 12 and 13, we saw the basis of our sanctification, the reality that we are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. And that therefore, that therefore leads to a transformed life. So the sanctification that we experience as the work of God's spirit in us, transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ is in response to his salvation. It is never a means to earn it. We thought about this, we put it this way back at the end of November. Obedient living is the response to salvation, not the means to earn it. And that is a vital distinction that we hold. In other words, our lives should be markedly, noticeably different as a result of the salvation we've received. Absolutely. Yes, wholeheartedly. We have been transformed by God's spirit. The, the spirit who raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us. He will, as we saw from chapter 1, verse 6, he will carry on to completion the good work he began in us. There should be evidence of his work in our lives. Yes, absolutely. But that evidence of work is never the, the means to salvation. It is the response and the result of salvation. And therefore, growing in Christ-likeness is a necessary work in the life of the believer. And it is a work that is from God, he alone saves. We cannot save ourselves. He alone saves. It is his gift of grace. Secondly, it is by God. You can see in verse 13 there that it is God who works in you to will and to act. It is God who works, God who transforms. Yes, of course we put effort in. Yes, of course we have to put sin to death. Yes, of course we have to bring about routines and rhythms that allow God the space in our lives to transform us. Yes, but it is God ultimately who works in us and sanctifies us. And ultimately then it is from God, by God, and for God. That it is for it is God who works in us in verse 13 to will and to act in order to fulfill his good pleasure. And so that was the basis of sanctification. That we are saved wonderfully, graciously by, by Jesus Christ. He takes our sin away and enters us into life eternal as his children. And isn't that glorious? And therefore... As saved people, our lives are transformed by his spirit. That is the basis of sanctification. And so today, as we continue on then, from verse 14 through to verse 18, we're going to see a couple of other aspects of sanctification. Namely, we're going to see an example of sanctification in verse uh, 14. Then we're going to see the impact of sanctification. So an example and the impact. Uh, I'd love to read that whole section with us again as we turn to God's word in Philippians 2. We'll start in verse 12 and we'll read the whole way down to verse 18. Um, if you haven't got a, a copy of God's word with you, please do lift one of the red hardback ones from a, a chair around you. If you don't have a copy of God's word at home, then please take that one with you. We would love you to be gifted with that. So let's read uh, God's word, Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends... 
As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, I I thank you for your word. We praise you, God, that in in every circumstance and at every time, it is good, it is living, it is active. This is your word to us. And so I pray, Father, this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be glorifying to you. Would you you transform us by your word this morning, we pray. Amen. And so verses 12 and 13 laid the basis of our sanctification. Verse 14 then gives us an example of sanctification. What does a sanctified life look like? I find it interesting that he begins with, uh, the Lord directs us to begin with this in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Grumbling or arguing, perhaps, perhaps that sounds like a strange example to, to give right off the bat as we think about sanctification, as we think about a life being transformed by God's grace. Grumbling and arguing might not be the first thing we jump to. But why should we start here? Well, well, I'm sure we have all experienced the damaging effects which grumbling and arguing can have. And perhaps you've even experienced that within a church setting, and that can be devastating. Remember, Paul is writing to the gathered church in Philippi here, so there is definitely something for us as the gathered church to listen to here, that God is speaking to us about how there shouldn't be any grumbling or arguing here. But it's also clear that this teaching can be applied to all areas of life too, can't it? Verse 14 is, do everything without grumbling or complaining. That's why I think that everything is there, that it is all of life. Do all of life without grumbling or complaining. But but these two things are different, aren't they? Grumbling and complaining. Grumbling has that sense of of an undercurrent of of murmur, uh, like background noise that you just can't ignore. It it, it may not come at us like, like direct opposition, but that doesn't mean that it can't cause untold harm when there's grumbling. There's been plenty of biblical examples about this, particularly if we look back into God's people as they being brought out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, they grumble at Moses and Aaron. And they grumble and grumble, and it has a devastating effect on them. You can read about that in Exodus 16, 17, and again in Numbers, and particularly in Numbers 14. Grumbling can, can just erode a community. Whereas arguing suggests this more confrontational disagreement, a a dispute. And again, it can be incredibly damaging because arguments by their very nature often get heated. And in the heat of the moment, things can be said that can be incredibly damaging. Again, the Bible has much to teach us about the power of words, particularly words spoken in anger. Even just as an example, if we look at James chapter 3, and I'd encourage you to read all of James chapter 3 when thinking about this, but James chapter 3 verse 6 in talking about the tongue says, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. 
It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it's it, it and is itself set on fire by hell. The tongue can control the whole body. Perhaps this is why, as an example of sanctification, we're told here that part of what it means to be sanctified by the Spirit is to have our tongue controlled by him. But we're to avoid this temptation to grumble, to argue, especially as we gather as a church family who love each other. But, but hang on. Could we say that, that everything, do everything without, surely that's an exaggeration. That's a bit of hyper, hyperbole there, is it? Don't we all experience the need for a good grumble every now and again? Let alone a good argument, which can clear the air, certainly gets my views across. How else, if we're not allowed to grumble or argue, how else are we supposed to respond when things aren't done the way we think they should be? Is this a command from God through Paul to essentially put up and shut up? To, to therefore become doormats just to be walked on? Well, no, in a word. No, that is not the biblical teaching on how we deal with disagreement. Christians shouldn't grumble and argue, but that doesn't mean that they can't disagree well with brothers and sisters. There's evidently a way to disagree that doesn't involve grumbling and arguing. And perhaps we'll get to that at some stage. And it's important also to notice that neither does this command therefore mean that Christians should never stand up or defend the gospel truth in the world around us. Through this letter already, we've seen Paul use language of defending and confirming the gospel in verse 7 of chapter 1. Later on in that chapter, in verse 14, he talks about believers who dare to proclaim the gospel without fear. At the end of chapter 1, he said you should stand firm in one spirit without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And so clearly Paul had experienced and was also anticipating the Philippian believers to experience robust discussion about faith as they shared God's truth in a world that didn't always accept it. Indeed, that was the basis of their suffering. Was their faithfulness to God's world in a world in, in a world which would have brought opposition to it? So Paul is yes advocating that God's people are to be sure about God's truth and to be ready to graciously yet boldly proclaim it and defend it when they can. So, so what is at the heart of the grumbling and arguing that Paul is talking about here? Well, I think we need to see this command as a call to examine our attitudes, which drives the behaviour. So remember, we're, we're in the middle of Philippians chapter 2 here, a chapter that so far has been about humility. And now we get to do not do everything without grumbling or arguing. See, I think we need to realize that if we dig beneath our grumbles and our arguments, very often we find an attitude that is not glorifying to Christ. I know for me, I'm tempted to grumble when things don't go the way I want. When, when, when things don't happen in the time frame I want, when people don't meet my expectations. But you can see the problem there, can't you? It's my pride is the problem. So my grumbling and arguing is not justified because it's my pride that is the real problem. I believe my way is best and I can't understand how anyone would see it differently. I believe my standards are best, so when people don't live up to them, then they must be wrong. And when, I, when I'm disappointed in people, when I'm disappointed in an organization or a group of people, what I do, I grumble. Maybe even argue. Often to myself, but I'll argue. And that's what we see with God's people on their way to the promised land. 
Back in those examples of Exodus 16, 17 and in Numbers, they're grumbling because things aren't going the way they want them to. They've ignored God's leading and instead they're focused on their own circumstances and things aren't working out the way they wish and so they grumble. But as followers of Jesus, we are not to do this. Do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing. So how then? Does this feel unattainable as we think about it? Well, if we were to rely on our own strength, then yes, it is going to be unattainable. But remember, sanctification is God's work in us. It is he who calls us to take on the mindset of Christ, as we saw back earlier in chapter 2. He calls us to take that on because he is at work with us, in us. Let's look back at at verses 3 and 5 of chapter 2 and ground ourselves rightly in what he has said to us so far. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so, as we see our mindsets and our attitudes being transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ by him, then we value others above ourselves. We look to the interests of others. We have his mindset. And and yes, that might sound idealistic. And of course, we will stumble and fall on our journey toward Christ-likeness. But the point is this, as we grow in maturity in Christ, then the amount we grumble and argue should decrease. As we grow in our likeness to Christ, the amount we sin decreases. Yes, God, as we saw in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 6, that he began a good work and will carry it on until completion. There is to be progress in the Christian life as God is at work in the hearts of those who love him. So we're given the example here of grumbling and arguing. Do everything without them because you have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And as we continue through this, this, these verses here in this section, do everything without grumbling and arguing, that, that command is not just left there hanging. We're actually given the reason for that command. We're given the outcome from it. Verse 15 begins, so that... So do everything without grumbling and arguing so that. So if you, need more, if you need more motivation rather than the pure command, which is, of course, motivation enough, here is some greater guidance as to why this is so significant. And this will lead us on to our second point of thinking about the impact of sanctification. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. So the impact of our sanctification is to be a bright and obvious witness to Jesus. And that makes sense, doesn't it? As we grow more, if sanctification is the process of growing more like Christ, then the more we grow like Christ, the more people will see Christ in us. The more they will see Christ through us, the more they will hear Christ as we speak to them. And so the impact of sanctification is we become more like Christ, therefore we are bolder witnesses for him. And there's a few things I just want to draw out from these verses to to help us consider, well, how does sanctification do that? Well, sanctification does that because followers of Jesus find their identity in him. They are his children. 
Followers of Jesus live distinctly for him. They shine among the world. Followers of Jesus hold firmly to him because they are rooted in his word. Let's take each of those briefly in order. Firstly, followers of Jesus find their identity in him. Did you notice that in verse 15? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God. That is who we are. And Paul makes that allusion back to Deuteronomy 32 to see the contrast of God's people in the world around. That world which was described as warped and crooked. Jesus uses similar language back in Matthew 17 and in Luke 9, talking about the the unbelieving and perverse generation. That, That might sound harsh to us. That feels like harsh language, but it shows us the seriousness of sin, doesn't it? Warped and crooked. Cast out from the presence of God. That is sin. And that is the world in which many of us find ourselves in when we when we are away from here, when we gather together as believers, isn't it wonderful? And then we are sent by God into the world, which often feels and looks like a warped and crooked generation. And so we see in that language, we see the seriousness of sin, but we also see then this backdrop that shows the starkness of the contrast of God's children to that warped and crooked generation. God's children are not unbelieving. God's children are not perverse. God's children are blameless and pure. God's children have been declared holy by him. The righteous judge of all the world has declared us so. And that's the wonder of the cross. It's not that that Christians are, are good people. Yes, they should be, but they're good people because of what Christ has done. It's the wonder of the cross where his sinless righteousness is transferred to us. He takes our sin and we are granted his righteousness. That is why God, the righteous one, can look at us and see us clothed with Christ and say, yes, you are my child. Welcome to the eternal home that I have prepared for you. That is who we are, and therefore, we're to live that out. Paul will talk about this a little bit in the next chapter. In, in, in Philippians three sixteen. he says this, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. It's that kind of language. We are holy. Heaven is our home. We're here temporarily. Heaven and glory and sinless purity is our home. Live like it now, children of God. And so how is sanctification possible? It's because that's who we are. We are God's children. He is at work in us. And therefore that lives, leads to followers of Jesus living distinctly for him. The language here in Philippians 2 is we will shine among them like stars in the sky. The ESV I think has, um, we will shine like lights in the world. And doesn't that bring to our minds some of Jesus' words back in Matthew 5? When he was talking to his followers and he said these words from Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are, a light of the, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the home. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, we are to, we are to shine the light of Christ. Jesus says, you are the light of the world because he is in us. Therefore, let your light shine. Don't hide it under a bowl. No, go into the world and shine for Jesus. There's to be a public dimension to how we live our sanctified lives. We're not to hide 
away from it. No, back in the language of Philippians 2, we are lights among them. We are to live in the world as Christ's ambassadors there. And so as we live, we're to live distinctly. We're to be a contrast to the warped and crooked generation. And finally then, followers of Jesus hold firmly to him. They are rooted in his word. We see this through that qualification given at the start of verse 16. As you hold firmly to the word of life. And the word of life, of course, is God's word. It is God's word that brings life. And the interesting thing to note is that little phrase, as you hold firmly. See, Christians are to shine like stars as they hold. And the Greek tense of that verb shows that that is a present, ongoing thing. That is not a past activity that once happened. That is a present, ongoing thing. We shine like stars as we hold firmly. We continually hold. We progress in our holding to the word of life. We grow in our maturity. We deepen our roots. And therefore, we shine as stars for Christ. And so if we needed it, here's another encouragement showing the necessity of abiding in God's word. Regularly, routinely spending time in his word so that we are shaped by it. We are rooted in his word. We hold firmly to it. Therefore, we can shine for him. And so if I could summarize this whole section in in one way, it might be this. That followers of Jesus are to live distinct lives under his leading which the world around us will take notice of. And as they take notice of it, won't they be drawn to the word of life? God's work of sanctification in our lives can speak powerfully to the lives of those we interact with because we get to witness to Jesus and his transforming work in and through us. And so we have this impact of our sanctification that God is glorified in us As we live transformed lives by him. God is glorified in us. As we're transformed by him. Just to finish with this section. Then goes on with Paul explaining to the Philippians. That if they continue to live this life. Then his service for the gospel will have been worthwhile. Even if that means suffering for him. In the present. Indeed he uses that language in verse 17. Of being poured out like a drink offering. We get that sense of Paul being totally spent. Maybe there's even an allusion here to his imminent death because of his faithfulness to the gospel, that he will be sacrificed for that. And yet even in these moments, he can say that he is glad and that he has rejoicing in his heart. How can he say that? How can his suffering bring gladness and rejoicing? Well, it shows Paul's overriding joy, which is based in seeing the gospel bear fruit. He's been talking here about how the Philippian church will continue to strive for sanctified living under the work of God's spirit. And that will bring him joy. And that joy is worth whatever suffering comes his way. Because there is nothing, there is nothing greater in this life. And there is nothing else that warrants life in the next than knowing Christ as Lord and living for him. So Paul knows that in his own life and he is spilling over with joy about the lives of the Philippian believers who he knows will live the same. Deep, eternal, unshakable joy which even in the midst of being poured out like a drink offering sustains Paul, lightens his heart, brings rejoicing and gladness. So much so that not only is he rejoicing but he tells them in verse 18 so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. 
gladness and joy because of their sanctified witness. And so as, as we conclude this paragraph on sanctification, what, what might the Lord be showing us this morning? Well, we've seen the example of sanctification, God working in our lives to enable us to do everything without grumbling or arguing because we carry the attitude of Christ. And that attitude of humility means that we deeply love one another. We, we put others' needs above our own. In essence, we kill our pride. His spirit kills our pride. And therefore, our priorities become God's ways. Our priorities become God's truth. And we become passionate about those things. Therefore, our words become powerful tools for him, not weapons to tear others down, but instruments of praise to the great and glorious God who has saved. And that sanctified life then has an impact on the world around us, the world that we are excuse me, not consumed by, but the world that we engage with, the world that we are to be among as we shine for Jesus. And so as we live in the confident assurance as our, of our identity as God's children, as we live our lives to please him above others, as we're grounded continually holding firmly to his word of life, then the world will take note of the one who saved us. The world will take note of the one who is transforming us, who we are living our lives for. The one who, in other words, brings true and lasting, unshakable joy. And so may we know that. May we know his work so deeply in our hearts that our words are transformed, our attitudes are transformed, our actions are transformed so that the world get to see him. As we shine among them like stars in the sky, they don't, people don't see how great we are. No, they see how great our God is. Isn't that what Jesus says in, at the end of Matthew 5, four, uh, that section that we read? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That is a life of joy lived to glorify the, our Father in heaven. And so may he help us. And may we be open and obedient to him as he leads us on. May it all be for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have saved us. Those of us who know and trust in you, you have saved us. You have secured for us an eternal home. And in the meantime, until you call us there, you are at work in our hearts. And you are continuing to grow us more and more into the likeness of your son. And so I pray, Father, that we, as your people, would be humbly submissive to you as you lead us. That we would indeed open up our hearts and our lives for you to transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So that, so that we may shine like stars among the world who need your gospel truth. We may shine in our families, shine in our workplaces, shine in our places of education, shine where we do our hobbies and our leisure time. Shine, Father, for you. Because you are so deeply at work in our hearts and our joy is rooted in you. All possible because of your saving work and our continued grounding in your word. So would you help us, we pray. Continue your work in us so that you can work through us so that you can be glorified, we pray. And we ask all of these things in the gracious, saving, victorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.